welcome to the Wilder Outdoors podcast, where you'll get the inspiration and information you need to have great outdoor adventures with your family. I'm Rob, your host. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today I have with me my friend, Jason Peterson. And Jason is an outdoorsman as well as an incredible family man. And today he's going to share some of his experiences and especially how he's cultivating a love for the outdoors in his kids. So Jason, thank you for joining us. No problem, Rob. It's great to be here. So Jason, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your family. Well, myself, I mean, I grew up in Bloomington right next to the very large Highland Park. So I always had bike trails and ski trails just now at the end of my street. So I explored those a lot growing up. So my parents, I think with a lot of parents were like, my kids need to be outside, or at least I need a couple minutes away from them. So go ride your bike. And I always had a place to go outdoors. And my wife, who I let, met many years later, had kind of a similar experience, not the same park, but was always outside riding her bike, finding places in the woods. And we decided before we got married that we were going to keep that tradition going. And we were going to have our kids be outdoor kids just as much as we could. So we have four kids and right now they're, six, eight, 10, and 12. And we try and just have a culture inside of our family that we get outside every day. We try and learn something. And really, we started off trying to do no screen time and we haven't quite held to that, but we're still keeping it at a bare minimum to like two hours a week so that they can have more reasons to be outside, more reasons to explore. And along with that, we had this idea, like, we're not going to get mad if they come home purple from mulberry juice and covered in mud. (laughs) And just like, if you're out exploring, that's great. That's what we want you to do. So I love that. So just out of curiosity, how are you enforcing those limits around screen time? Well, we have, we only have one TV in the house and uh, two iPads. And they're all passcoded, so they have to ask us for permission anytime they go on. So they don't know the passcode. We type it in, hand it to them, and like, okay, we'll set a kitchen timer for 20 minutes or half an hour, and then you'll be done. I love that. So now I know this, uh, but maybe our, our listeners don't, but um, you have a very rich experience in the outdoors, maybe even before you met your wife. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah. We, I mean, even after growing up, I went to summer camp in ninth grade in the Rocky mountains and fell in love with just the mountains and being outdoors. And at that time I just fell in love with the experience myself. So I kept going back and volunteering to be a counselor and eventually developed this love of teaching other people and allowing them to enjoy the outdoors. So for nine years, for nine summers, two to three months of summer, I would go out into the Rocky mountains and take people canoeing and kayaking and hiking and mountain biking and teaching them survival skills went out in the winter a few times and got to go on ice climbing trips and telemark skiing and then there's another summer in there where there's a great organization the student conservation association so just a different kind of overarching the same i was doing the same things but i was assigned one group of six kids for the whole summer and we went down to arkansas which is surprisingly beautiful 
and we rebuilt a 26 mile trail that had been destroyed in an ice storm. And I think those are kind of probably the big developing experiences I've had in the outdoors. Oh my goodness. So how old were you when you were a camp counselor? Well, when I was 16, that's when I started getting to lead. I spent two years just being like the guy that was in the back carrying the first aid kit. And I never got to like be in charge there. It's like, yeah, just go and learn what you can. And it's really great to learn what it's like to be the back person in a line and know what the slow person in a group is feeling and talking about. And then after two years of doing that, then I got to start leading trips and teaching more. Wow. And you did it for nine years. That's amazing. Um, so I, I sort of found my calling to, you know, mentor kids in the outdoors as a camp counselor as well, but I was, you know, in my very early twenties. And then unfortunately after that, uh, I found that life got in the way of spending a summer at summer camp. So how, how did you make that work as you got older? Well, it was, that's a great question. I think it's just that I started young enough that I got nine years in. And after I graduated from college, I did one more summer and didn't start a real job that was hard to take the summer off from until I was 23. That's awesome. So now, Jason, I would have kept doing it if I had been a school teacher, found another job that had more vacation. Man, now you're not giving me an excuse. I was a school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I still had a lot going, but I, I did mentor a lot of my students in the outdoors. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, now you mentioned a real job. I think just for everyone's sake, tell us a little bit about your job. Well, my, let's see. I like, it has to do with human waste. So I have a lot of different ways to phrase it. But <laughs> in the professional way, I am an environmental engineer in charge of resource recovery. So whatever gets flushed, I try and turn it into fertilizer, energy, and clean water break it down into those three components. And if you're, if you're a middle school boy, I just clean poop. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't think you need to be in middle school to think that's awesome. awesome. Um, All right. well, I love that. And so I'm curious, you know, did, did your love of the outdoors lead you into that path, especially knowing that you're an environmental engineer? Of course. Yeah. Cause I, I went to school and everybody's like, you should be an engineer and it's a great job. So I started listening to everybody else. And then I got to school and I'm like, this is, I was going to be a civil engineer. So I was going to build bridges. And I got to school. And I'm like, I kind of don't want to deal with concrete my whole life. So I switched from after two years being engineering, I switched into forestry. So I spent two years in studying the biology and bird watching class was amazing and just loving the outdoors. And then I realized I'd been there for four years. All my friends graduated. I'm like, what am I going to do? So for my fifth year, I talked to somebody like, if you overlap these two majors, you can contribute all those engineering credits and all those biology credits and get an environmental engineering degree. So I still got out of there in just five years, <laughs> not too far behind all my friends. Oh, that's so, so cool. Yeah. So I took that original base and added on all this love of the outdoors and still kind of tweaked my engineering component to be something more environmental and more outdoors. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So I'm sort of following your timeline. You, you're, you know, in high school, you're starting as a counselor, you go to college, you're still a counselor. At some point you get married. Did that happen right after college? There was, 
four years after college before maybe five, four years till I met my wife, five till we got married. Mm. And, cool. Yeah. And I so spent that you... time just biking and rollerblading and going camping on the weekends. And yeah, that's awesome. Have so how, how long did it take for you and your wife to start having kids after you were married? Let's see. We were, let's say another four years. Another four years. So, so what were you doing together in the outdoors during that time? Well, we hiked the Superior Hiking Trail for one. So that's a 200 plus mile trail along Lake Superior. And we started at Grand Portage, Minnesota and took three weeks straight and hiked in one shot down to two harbors. I think the trail is getting a little longer, but at the time we did it, it was 206 miles. And then, yeah, we went, I took her down to Arkansas to see the trail I'd built and we hiked that. Um, and then really whenever we had a vacation, it was either one of two places. Half of our vacations were backpacking and half of our vacations were visiting family. And sometimes if we could take a day hike out there, like in Seattle where my sister lived, we could go hike in the, I think it's the Olympic national park or just up towards one of the ski areas. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So when you plan a vacation, you just start thinking like, do we want to go somewhere big and see a city? Do you want to see people or do you want to see more of creation in the outdoors? And we often would pick the outdoors at wow. least half the time. <laughs> well, and I know that tension too, you know, especially not living near family for us. That's, that's been hard, but all right. So it sounds like you were, you're very, I don't want to call you intense, but very engaged in the outdoors as a couple. And then you have kids. What was yes. that change like? There was no change. I mean, from a kid perspective, huge change, parenting perspective. But from a way of life and being outdoors, it really didn't change because we're like, well, we're still going to go backpacking. We're still going to go on vacations based around a national park. So all of our kids slept in a tent by the time they were six months old. We had one born in December, so that one was a little more delayed. Otherwise, it would all be within like two months. Wow. So how? what are some of the things you did to, to accommodate you know, such small kids? I know it can feel overwhelming for a lot of folks to, to think about having an adventure with, shoot, I mean, my kids are um, three, oh gosh, this is embarrassing. They're three, four, and six. I remembered them. But, uh, you know, even now it can feel a little intimidating. What did you guys do to get such young kids out? Well, we started by just moving our trips closer. So sleeping in a tent in the backyard, just as kind of a dry run to be like, will anybody sleep? Not that the baby slept well anyway, but finding there's city parks and county parks that are great. Um, if you're in Minnesota, we love Carver Park. And then if anything goes wrong, you're like, oh, we're only 15 minutes away. And especially there's one, the first time we spent the night with all four in a tent, we woke up and it was 34 degrees and raining. And we're like, oh, which is like the worst oh weather gosh. conditions in the world. And we just hiked the hundred yards back to our car and we're like, all right, we're going into town. And we drove three miles and found a gas station, got hot chocolate and sat on the floor of the gas station drinking hot chocolate. Nice. And we're like, it's a still camping. We spent the night in the tent. <laughs> so it Not sounds kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a whole nother animal. Um, 
literally and figuratively. Yes. So, um, so it sounds like you you build adventure, but you always sort of stay an arm's length away from from maybe a, a gosh, like a, a safety valve or or some of sort course. of yep. you know lifesaver if things get crazy. Yeah, because we didn't know how things were going to go, especially with the first one. Mm-hmm. So what would be the most memorable of those really early trips for you? Well, it probably would be the the gas station hot chocolate was a good one. But then, let's see, the North Shore, we went up to, there's a great state park, Tedaguchi, and we had three kids at that time. And our son was just, I mean, we were wearing him in a front carrier the whole time. And it was the first time that our two older ones like had memories of what to do camping and like, Oh, we know how to set up the tent. Now we're good at this. Oh, let's set out the, the air mattresses. I'm going to blow mine up for the first time. And so they would have been at that point, newborn two and four and just seeing our four-year-old like identify as a camper and somebody who knows what's going on. And oh, be like, cool. we're well on our way and being like, we'll just park the car. You guys set everything up and you do all the work. That's awesome. All right. So, you know, it, it, I think in my mind, it would be really easy when you have kids to say, okay, we're going to wait until X, right? There's certainly some things in our family that we, we, we say like, okay, when our oldest is five, we'll do this, but you didn't do that, right? You, you stepped out and you kept it moving. Why, why do you think it was important to keep doing that with your family? I'm going to go with two answers. And the first is every parent, when we had kids, their piece of advice was, they grow up so fast. Don't wait. Like, don't take anything for granted. So after being told that like 500 times, I'm like, okay, we're just going to start things right now. And the second part of it was kind of going back to our first marriage conversation. And I'm like, we're an outdoor family. If we have kids, they're going to be outdoor kids. And that we're going to figure this out. If we fail, however you define failure, that's all right. Cause like, you're still learning. And if you grow up in the outdoors, I think you just learn that kind of the worst things happen, the better the story is and the better the character building and the better the memories. And there's more joy involved when you get home and you're like, can you believe we went through that? <laughs> so That's aside awesome. from diapers, it's really, we weren't going to backpack with diapers. So once we got out of that phase, that was the only kind of hold back to going big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard that described as, what is it, like type type one and type two fun, right? Like type one fun is cheap, but you don't remember it. But type two fun is miserable when you're going through it. But at the end, you have these great memories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I feel the same way. Well, that's really, really helpful and inspiring, I think, for myself and for a lot of other people. Now, if you were going to talk to someone who's got really young kids and they want to get involved in the outdoors, but they don't really know where to start. What would you recommend? Well, when we get into new activities, the library is great adventure books, um, state parks and national parks. And you walk up, if you just want to talk to a ranger and say like, Hey, we're new and they've got great ideas. Often they've got like kids packs or junior ranger programs that they're like, why don't you just go out and try and find five different red flowers or some kind of bingo card or something which is great. And then 
of course, yeah, YouTube and a little bit of research helps a long way or goes a long way. But then I'd have to say you got to set your attitude about it's totally okay to fail. And as long as you all come back as a family, then it was a success. So even if your expectations are not what happens, it was still a great experience. So just go out and try something. And if it doesn't go well, you're like, oh, I learned that for next time. We'll, we'll remember matches in a stove next time. We won't just, <laughs> yeah, eat soggy that's, granola bars. That's great advice. Now, now you've spoken with me a little bit about this, and I'd love to hear more, but you are doing a lot right now to help your kids experience a little bit of outdoor adventure every day. You, you mentioned mulberries, right? But I know you guys are actually doing a lot and sort of growing in this way. Can you tell me a little bit about what y'all are doing to help your kids have those adventures in the day-to-day -day right now? Yeah. And I want to preface it just with a quick story about my dad that I don't, I don't remember, but he told it to me as a leadership lesson on how he was setting up his camper one day, of course, because he was a camping family. We grew up there. And another gentleman came over to help him set up the camper. And my dad said, oh, no, I know how to do this on my own. I'm good. And he saw the other man like shrink down, his shoulders drop, and kind of walk away sad. And my dad, the lesson he was trying to teach me is that proving yourself sufficient doesn't impress anybody but yourself. And having somebody to experience these things with you is going to make the experience better for everybody. So... Whenever we go outside, we try and bring a kid with to share the idea that they can learn with as well. Like if we're teaching, then that's great. If we're just making a memory together, that's great. And some of the things that we're doing, when we go outside, we've got chickens and bees and we live on a little bit of a drainage pond. So we've got water in the backyard and we're trying to catch turtles and raise them inside. We're trying to find fertilized turtle eggs and trying to get into gardening a little bit. And yes, we went out and made mulberry jelly last week. So anything that, I don't know if you want to Instagram, you just go down the holes of homesteading is kind of our ideal person right now to think about like, who are you aspiring to be? And we have a lot of respect for the people that just go into the woods and find a way to live. So we're trying to emulate that. Right. So it's almost like you're balancing self-sufficiency and connection, right? Yep. Which we would say is like family sufficiency. Got it. I love that family sufficiency. So one thing that I, I mean, the listeners might not have picked up on what we're talking about is you don't live in the woods, right? You, you live in, in a city. Yeah, we are. 200 yards from the freeway and have a third of an acre. And sometimes our backyard is mud and sometimes it's water depending on the rain. <laughs> yeah. Just so everyone knows I'm new to chickens, but Jason is not. And so we were chatting a little bit about, uh, you know, how to keep them and, and how we're keeping them alive and making sure we're getting good egg production here in the city. But it's, it's certainly possible to start cultivating this stuff no matter where you are. Right. And one of the things that I love about you is that you are, are committed to adventure and, and your kids are doing so many things. I'm curious, what are some of the more memorable, uh, we'll say outdoor experiences that your kid have had or your kids have had in, 
sort of your home setting, maybe a setting that someone would think of as more mundane, right? Not out in the wilderness, but, but in the day to day. Well, we love, I mean, hopefully every year, not every time, but our backyard, this little drainage pond will freeze. And we have cattail Island, which is always a favorite in that some years the ice freeze is perfectly smooth and we can skate out there. And some years it's snowy and we're like, we're just going to ski. And I don't know, it's maybe 300 yards away, but just suiting up and getting on like cheap snowshoes or cheap cross country skis and going out there, they'll make a fort and have meals out there. And it's great to just, it feels like a whole nother world, but it's less than a quarter mile from our house. Just that we did something. Yeah. Carrying your lunch on your pack and not going to school with it, not in a lunchbox is a special idea. And thinking that now that they're old enough, we just trust them. It's around the corners. So we can't quite see them, but we know that they're just a quarter mile away and they feel like they're in the middle of nowhere. And that's the experience I had growing up at Highland Park. I was always within two miles of my house, but I couldn't see any structures. I felt like I was in the middle of nowhere. Oh, that's neat. So I, I want to ask you about your experience with something that I think we sharing in common. We haven't discussed before. And that's how did the transition go between teaching other people's kids about the outdoors and your kids about the outdoors? Oh yeah. We haven't talked about that. Well, I think what is other kids, it was clearly like, this was like when a kid would come to camp, I'm like, I'm going to teach them how to tie these knots. And it was more about a skill and less about the whole person. And when it's my kid, I want to teach them how to grow up to be kind, how to be thankful, how to use skills to make a better environment for our family and our neighborhood. So it broadens the perspective to like, why are we doing this? What can, and then the more questions of what can you do to help others with these skills that you have? Is this bringing more joy to your life? Could it bring more joy to somebody else's life? Hmm. So have you found that your kids are able to pass any of that on yet? Yeah, for sure. When we have, I don't want to oversell them as being like super mature, but there's definitely times when they'll invite other kids along and like, oh no, let's not go there. I mean, that's, that's the thin spot of ice or they're conscious of like, I wouldn't oversell it quite yet. They're conscious of what to do to stay safe, what to do to have fun. And they're really confident, especially with the chickens. Like they're right at home with the chickens. Seeing our six-year-old walk into the coop, pull one out and like, walk up to a neighbor with it and be like, Hey, would you like to pet the chicken? It's not scary, but wash your hands. <laughs> oh, that's fun. So, yeah. And we can hear them say things to the neighbors that are exactly what we said to them. That's cool. Yeah. 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 I was speaking to someone recently and he was talking about how he was able to get his kids to be safe in the woods while still giving them the freedom to explore. Right. And it's interesting to me that that's what your kids have sort of latched onto in a way is how to keep people safe. How did you balance keeping them safe while also giving them the freedom to, you know, go explore? Well, I think, they have, and if the goal is for them to come home at the end of the day, it's okay if they come home bruised and a different color. 
so we just set certain boundaries that were like, don't eat anything you find until you ask us. And yeah, because there's water, we say like, don't go in the water without a life jacket. So there's the perceived danger and the actual dangers. And we tried to beef up the perceived danger. We not beef it up, but not worry about that and be like, yeah, it's kind of scary, but you're strong. You're smart. Go figure it out. And as long as we protected them from like the real dangers of drowning, then we were doing okay. So we would know the areas we were going for the most part and just prepare those. Yeah. If there's water there in a life jacket, but if we were in a city park, we would take a few risks. I mean, you kind of trust that if you go out into a County park, that there's not going to be a bear, it's going to be well-traveled and just kind of let them go. Like here are your boundaries. Here's a map. It was great to teach them how to read a map and be like, don't go past these fences and try and come back within an hour or two hours, wherever the time frame is. And then it's always a little scary, but you start off with being like, come back in 10 minutes. And when they build trust there, you say, come back in 15. And you, once they show that they're trustworthy in a little bit, you give them a little bit more and a little bit more. And then they feel more confident. We feel more trusted or trusting. So. Mm-hmm. So almost like you, you start with a little bit of, not to compare our kids to animals, but right. You give them a little bit of leash to run on. And then maybe once they show that they can operate in that, you give them a little more and a little more and a little more. Is that what yeah. I'm hearing? Yep. And sometimes when it's young and they're running down the trail, you're following them so you can still see them, but they can't see you. And that was just a small step. And now yeah, our kids, if we're, if they're two miles away for two hours, we're like, they know how to find their way home. So that is a level of trust I have not gotten to yet, but I look forward to a day when I do, but that's, that's wonderful. All right. So let's, let's pivot here because you also mentioned that you still go to national parks with your kids. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Whenever we take a vacation, it's kind of like, what do you want to see? And we made a list of the big trips that we want to go to in the world before they graduate. So we figure we have this great time to travel as with our kids before they start growing up and wanting to do other things. And the list was mostly comprised of great things to see that are going to make us be like, wow, the, how God created the world is amazing. So we wanted to see deserts and canyons and mountains and big rivers and waterfalls. And the national parks are all kind of built around these things. So we, last year we went to the Grand Canyon and Sedona. I know Sedona is not a national park, but just that area to go hike and the joy of seeing our kids compare those two places. Like at one spot, it's a valley and we're hiking along the top and looking down. And then we drive 20 minutes, an hour, and you're down at the bottom of the valley hiking and looking up the same and be like, wow, it looks so much bigger when you're on one side versus the other. But also there are just things that you're not going to see anywhere else. And every time you see a new um, ecotone or part of the environment, you're like, wow, this is just expands our mind to the creativity in the world. And as it broadens the, what your imagination will do, what your hopes will do. So seeing the Grand Canyon makes you think less of yourself and more of like how big the world is. Mm, I love that. So, yes, but we're going to go to Yellowstone next week and 
hopefully see, I don't know, more amazing nature, some grizzly bears. So, wow. So how old were your kids when you started doing that? The, let's see, the youngest would have been three. So three, five, seven, nine. It's really easy when they're every other year. So three, five, seven, nine. <laughs> well, and how many parks have you been to with them? It's been one big trip a year. So, but some of them you get two parks in, like you can combine Grand Canyon and there's a cluster down there by Las Vegas. And then there's a cluster in Wyoming. We'll see. But so I'd say probably 10 parks in three years. Wow. That's amazing. We actually just took our kids to their first national park. So Michelle and I had been to, you know, several parks just as part of living in different states. So I grew up in Florida. I was by the Everglades National Park. And, you know, we lived in Arizona. So we went to the Grand Canyon often. Uh, but this was the first time we ventured out. And we actually took the kids down to Mammoth Cave with the goal of going outside the park and hunting for geodes. And that was, that was a trip. That was a lot of fun. Sounds great. Um, oh man. Yeah. I, I can't, I cannot recommend the caves enough, but again, that's, that's the whole point of the national parks, right? It's like, they make you feel small no matter yes. what they are. And uh, yeah, it, it was wonderful, but there was a lot of learning for us because you know, it, it was a bigger trip. Um, you know, there's, there's costs involved, there are logistics involved. If, you know, let's say you were speaking, shoot, you can just speak to me right now. Cause I'm going to listen and I'm, I'm learning, but imagine you're speaking to someone who's got younger kids. They want to take these adventures. They've got these bucket list items, but they feel like, oh, I just don't know how I can make it happen. What are some, maybe some quick and easy wins that they can, they can achieve or some, some really achievable short-term steps that could get them closer to that goal. All right. Well, I mean, you mentioned there's a cost. So I mean, we put away a couple hundred bucks a month all year to be ready to go on this trip. So that when it comes up, we're not freaking out about like whatever it's going to be. If you have a fourth grader, they get in for free. It's a nice tip. And we're going to have a fourth grader. This is our second kid. It's in fourth grade and we got two more coming up. So we're trying to also pack that in. But then do whatever you're going to do in the national park in a small scale. Sleep in your, in your tent in the backyard. Make dinner over the fire in your backyard or at the city park. And so you know how to sleep, how to eat, how to change clothes in a sleeping bag if that's what you're going to do. Um, and just, yeah. So get... Start with the expectations and try the experiences in a protected area and then go do them in the big new park. But then also we love, there's so many mom blogs about people that have already gone and like, this is the best time to go. This is the sunrise is amazing at this mountain versus don't waste your time at this trail. It's, I don't know. So just, yeah, TripAdvisor, mom blogs, they'll give you some extra tips on how to do things. So many people have gone the way already ahead of us and a lot of them take really good notes. That's great. So if there was a park that you would recommend everybody get to with their kids before their kids are out of the house, what would it be? I would say the boundary waters slightly biased to Minnesota, but it has, I mean, you canoe a little bit. So the, it's a new skill there in canoeing. You don't have to carry as 
the weight on your back, except for portages. So you have shorter hikes, so you can carry. If you need a couple more creature comforts from home, the weight's not as big a deal. And it's a dark skies certified area. So at night you look up and the stars are amazing. Probably the best I've ever seen in my life. So Boundary Waters Canoe Area, best piece of nature in the United States. Cool. And for anyone who may not be from Minnesota, explain real quick what portaging is. Portaging is when Minnesota has lots and lots of lakes, but they don't all touch. So there's areas where you have, sometimes it's like 20 feet and sometimes it's maybe a mile where you have to unload your canoe and carry your canoe across the land to get to the next lake. And then you go back for a second time to carry everything that was in the canoe. And then you put it down and then you can canoe for another 20, 40 miles and then you do it again. <laughs> and just to, you know, temper expectations, you, you don't have to canoe 40 miles, but you probably will have to portage if you go to the boundary waters. Yes. One yeah. of my favorite boundary waters trips, we only did one portage and canoed two miles and it was in September late September, and there's an island, maybe about half an acre. And the sun was baking on one side. And there's a little rock cliff, but the other side had snow on it. So we could go from 32 degrees to 80 degrees, depending on where the sun was shining during the day. And we just hung out on that island for the weekend. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, Jason, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's been great talking to you.